we are continuing right along week after week. Uh, we uh, we gather to worship. We gather to uh, learn, and we uh, we we learn God's truth so that uh, His Spirit can apply it to our lives and change us. Um, we uh, we want to know Him better, kind of like as Stan was just praying. We want to know Him better. Uh, because that is what God's Spirit is going to use to fuel our love for Him. And, uh, and then as we love Him more, we, we just want to serve Him more. And it just happens cyclically, right over and over and over again. Uh, and I'm always really encouraged by uh, the chance that we have to gather and worship. So we are continuing right along uh, in uh, our series, United in Love. And uh, uh, I want to uh, uh, read a quote for you guys here to start out from... Jonathan Edwards, if you guys know that name, you might know who he is. He is a well-known Christian pastor and theologian from the mid-1700s. And uh, uh, he, uh, he once had this to say um, about the place that love should have in the Christian's life. He said, love is not an ingredient in a merely speculative faith, but it is the life of and soul of a practical faith. So he contrasts a speculative faith, as he calls it, with a practical faith. A hypothetical faith on one side against a real faith on the other. A faith that merely takes place in your head Versus a faith that takes place with your hands and your feet. You see in Jonathan Edwards' day, and it's uh, not so different than ours today, so many Christians talked about love, but that's it. They just talked about it. Their faith never went beyond their conversations, and love was therefore just another topic of discussion. They'd have been happy to come to a service like this, They've been happy to break them into discussion groups like we oftentimes do, although we will not today. Otherwise, we'd never get through 1 Corinthians 13. Um, They'd be happy to talk about love, but to talk about love no differently than they might talk about the weather. But to actually roll up their sleeves and engage in their faith was so foreign to so many. They were, as James writes, hearers of the word, but not doers. Hearers of the word, but not doers. Their faith was only speculative. It was never practical. And as James writes, those people who are hearers, right, those of you that come week after week and you hear this, you read your Bibles, you see it week after week, and yet it doesn't impact your life. There's no doing. James says that you are deceiving yourself. He says you're living a worthless religion. But if in Jonathan Edwards' day and in our day, if their faith would have been real, if our faith would be real, then we would quickly realize that love is the very life and soul of our faith. You know, I was thinking about it this week and and this entire kind of uh, series on, on unity and love and um, and I, I don't think I am speaking kind of in hyperbole here when I say that I don't believe that it's possible to overemphasize the significance of love in the life of a Christian. 
Think about it. That's actually a really big statement that I don't think it is possible to overemphasize the significance of love in the life of a Christian. No matter how much you might dedicate yourself to studying biblical love, no, how ma- how, no matter how much you might dedicate yourself to discussing with others the idea of biblical love, however much you seek to live in love, it'll never be too much. That's what I mean when I say I don't think it's possible to overemphasize the significance of love in our lives. Jesus is, is having a conversation and he is asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? Right? You guys know this. What does he say? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So his response to the greatest commandment is both a vertical love as well as a horizontal love. Paul, at the, at the end of this passage, we're not going to dig into the very end, but at the very end of this passage, before he moves on in chapter 13, he says, So now, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, right, that's massive. Hope, that's massive in the life of a believer. And yet the greatest of these, Paul says, as inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes this, right? The greatest of these is love. It's not possible to overemphasize love in the life of a Christian. And yet I worry that it's no different for us as it was in Edward's time. That love is just another ingredient in a, a faith that is nothing but speculative, just hypothetical. And so as we go through the rest of this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I want you guys to be praying that God would turn this into the life and soul of your very real faith. Such a gift from God that he's not only given us this clear command, I mean, think about it. Right? So often we spend our time talking about the things in Scripture that really people have spent forever talking about that we're never going to fully understand And yet how good it is that we have a God who said, hey, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? If I'm going to sum all of this up, all right, I'll sum it up for you. Right, that's what Jesus did right here. I'll sum it up for you. It's all contained within these two commands, vertical as well as a horizontal love. What a good God that he he gave that to us, right? And and yet it wasn't just like now you have this general concept of love because think about it. If I'm talking to my boys and I say, hey, you you need to love your brother. What does that look like? How do I teach my sons how to love? It's, it, it's actually more vague and, and generic than we might realize, right? What a, what a good God we have that he not only gave us such a clear commandment, but that he also gave us such a clear teaching on what it actually means to love. That's what we have in 1 Corinthians 13. So with that, I want to read... Uh, the, the passage that we've been considering for the last few weeks, again, just to catch us up for today. So 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to start in verse 4. Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. We've looked at love as patient. We looked at love as kind, not envy, not boast, not arrogant. Next one we have love is not rude. So this idea of being rude, it's kind of one of those, uh, you know how there's those words that we, we kind of, we can identify it even if we can't necessarily define it. This is, this is kind of one of those terms where you, you can tell when somebody's being rude even if you don't know exactly how to define it. Well, I'm going to try to define it for you. So, um, uh, in fact, uh, no, I'm going to try. I, I looked around for what I thought was uh, the best definition, um, and I like this one. This is the Oxford Dictionary. It's, it's the idea of, of being offensively impolite or ill-mannered. Bad manners, right? You're impolite, but your, your impoliteness, if that's even a word, is offending other people. Right? This is the idea of rudeness. This is the sort of inappropriate, arrogant behavior seen among uh, the, the elitists, as, as some have called the people in Corinth, right? Those ones that we've been studying kind of carried their faith as if they were better than others, that they knew more than others, and they could get away with doing certain things that others couldn't. Chapter 8, we see this rudeness, how rude it was for them to eat meat that harmed others' consciences. Chapter 11, the rudeness that they carried themselves with when they would all show up to their church gathering, which, by the way, was not so much like this. It was in a home, and it's usually around a table, right? And a meal was central to it, and some would show up, and they just start eating before everybody else got there, filling themselves up without considering the other people. Rudeness, right? Inappropriate, arrogant behavior that really kind of shows up sometimes when we least expect it in what we say or in how we act. You guys know what it is, right? Even if you can't define it, you know it when you see it. You're talking to somebody, they roll their eyes. Or you're in a conversation with somebody and you feel like they're talking down at you. Right? Or maybe you're in a conversation and you think you know better than them. Or what they're saying isn't worth it, and so you're basically ignoring them even though they're still talking. These are all the different ways that we basically do exactly what God's Word says not to do here. Just to be rude to others. Um, you know, we have these things in our society that uh, somehow are at least somewhat socially acceptable when they're really just blatantly rude. Right, we've all done these too. So, have you ever started a sentence with, hey, no offense, but, right, or, hey, I hate to say it, but, this might come across as wrong, but, right, I hope that you all realize that these are nothing more than essentially licenses for rudeness and disunity. You might as well start your sentence, I'm going to sound like a jerk here, because I am being a jerk, right? But because I've told you, you're not allowed to get offended. 
think how often this happens, right? And it's, it's not exactly socially acceptable, but it basically is when really all it is is just us being rude. Being rude is unloving because at minimum it makes a person uncomfortable, right? So how are we loving others when we're acting in a way that puts them in that position? Or very possibly more often than not, it just makes a person feel worthless, And I know some of you might say, you might say, well, I'm like this because God made me like this. Right? Well, I'm not being rude. I'm just being myself. Which, I mean, you know, to be fair, there are some personalities that are um, more prone to rude behavior than others. Uh, If you're type A, you're probably going to be more rude than others because oftentimes, I'm going to say we, I'm... I'm a, uh, what do I call it? I'm a, uh, I'm a, I'm a type A in denial or something like that. I don't know. Um, I should know what I say, right? Um, type A is more concerned with projects than people. I need to get it done. So you're rude to others in your quest to get it done. Decisive people. Right, you've already formed your opinion on something, and so you plow right through the conversation when others are still trying to work through the issue, right? People are having a discussion trying to figure it out. You're decisive. You already have it figured out right through the middle. It's rude. Outgoing people. Talking before thinking. External processors. Which can also sound like putting your foot in your mouth without thinking. Super smart people, right? Let me go through this. Type A, nothing wrong with that. Decisive, nothing wrong with that. Outgoing, nothing wrong with that. Being super smart, nothing wrong with that. In fact, all of these can be really awesome when used for the Lord. But when used selfishly, not so much. The super smart person, right? You know they're wrong. And you feel like it's your job to make sure that they know that they're wrong. Paul, I'm not being rude. I'm just being myself. Okay, but even if God did make you like this, do you really think that that means that he's made you like this so you can be rude to others? You know, my most, um, my most consistent prayer every, every single day uh, is that I would love summer well. Uh, in fact, 1 Corinthians 13 was, uh, this, this section of 1 Corinthians 13 was the desktop on my phone for over a year so that I could constantly look at it and be reminded what it means to love because I knew I needed to love summer well. Uh, and, uh, and, and the reason this really was something, and it still is something I pray about every single day, is because of this right here. It's because I know I can be rude to her. And that's not loving. God's been kind, so his summer, I'm not like I was, but early on in our marriage, uh, I, was a, I, I could be a jerk. And the worst part was I didn't even realize it. As much as I knew, I was just being myself. I I can get tunnel vision when I'm working hard on something. When that would happen, I'd mostly ignore Summer when she'd talk to me or I'd answer her dismissively 
I'm critical of myself, and I would naturally put that onto her, telling her when I thought she needed to work on something. And if she wasn't picking up on what I was saying, I'd start to weaponize my words, saying things with an edge as my way of making sure that the point got across. As much as I knew I was just being myself, right? I knew I wasn't being like awesome, but I was just kind of doing exactly what I'd always done my entire life, except now I'm doing it towards the person that I'd committed before God to love. And this is of everything on this list, of everything that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13, the thing that I struggle with the most. And, and because of that, I want to slow down. And I want to say this. I don't know what your biggest struggle or struggles might be from this passage. I really do hope that you're letting God's word like a mirror reflect back at you. Looking through this list saying, God, where do I need to work? Where do I need to surrender so I can love others better? I don't know what yours might be, but I do know that you might not even totally see it yet took me until my mid-twenties to realize how rude I could be, and it took me hurting Summer one too many times before she started to speak up. Still to this day, I'll ask Summer a question with no rudeness at all, no secret agenda at all, and she'll respond defensively. And when she does, I get bummed because I know that I trained her to be like that, at least to a certain degree. My rudeness early on in our marriage is why when I now ask questions, like I did then, right, with a, with a deeper meaning, and I ask them now without that, she gets defensive because of the way I behaved, right? Don't be as blind as me. Whatever it is on this list, ask others who know you best. Give you some input. Give you some feedback. I want to love like Christ, Right? I want to I allow this fruit of the Spirit to, to grow up within me. I want to put on love like Paul says. But I don't know, like, where on this list do I fail? Where on this list do you see the most unloving behaviors? Ask them, right? Because if you're behaving like that, you might know it, you might not. You could be blind to it like I was. But if you are, you're hurting others. And you could be creating Long-time scars that take decades for that to be healed within your relationship. Begin to develop the habit of praying the well-known but too often ignored prayer of David. Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Start praying that more often. Let God's word and let God's spirit convict you on these things as well as everything else. Love is not rude. What's the opposite? Or what's another way of saying it kind of in the reverse? Love respects others. Love is treating others with dignity and decency. Right? Love is remembering that every single person in this room has been made by God in his image and that the way they were made, as well as the way that they were raised, all fall under the sovereign control of God. Right, so respect them. 
Don't be rude. Treat them with dignity and decency. Proverbs 16, 24, I love this. Pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. That word pleasant, it's really best understood as beautiful or gracious. Right? These are the types of words that are sweet to the soul and give health to the body. So when you talk like this, you're talking in a way that blesses them and builds them up. Right? Treat them with dignity and decency. Next, love does not insist on its own way. Literally, this says it does not seek its own things. Right? I don't seek after my own stuff. It's the picture of a person selfishly seeking after what they want. And this is basically at a pandemic level in Corinth, if you think about it. Those who could speak in tongues weren't doing it for others, but only for themselves. Those who were comfortable with eating meat offered to idols were doing it because they didn't struggle with it, but with no consideration for others who did struggle with it. Even the one who was, if you remember, Kind of like the big sin that we always remember, which you now realize hopefully after the last few weeks is only kind of a small part of the dysfunction in the church of Corinth. Even the one who was um, uh, uh, basically committing adultery with his stepmom, what was he doing? He was doing what he wanted to do with absolutely no concern for how it was impacting others. So many making decisions purely based on what was best for them. You go throughout your entire day maybe even an entire week, and all you've ever thought about is yourself. Me, myself, I. What do I want to eat? What do I want to do with my free time? What can other people do to make my life better? Never once thinking about what your family, your friends, or even your roommate that might annoy you. Never thinking about what they want. It's natural because of our sin, but it's not love. Selfless, others-oriented people are so rare. Think about that. You remember the people who are always thinking of others, always going, uh, trying to, to look out for you. Selfless, others-oriented people are so rare. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes this about Timothy. He says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare for others seek their own interests. That's the exact same phrase, by the way, as in 1 Corinthians 13. For others seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I have no one like Timothy. And then he says, why? Why? Because he doesn't seek his own way, but he has genuine concern for others. And Paul says, he's like nobody else because of this. One more verse, Psalm 119.36 it's so a prayer I pray nearly every morning at the start of my devotions. Incline my heart to your truths and not to selfish gain. Think about what he's saying. God, my heart is so naturally drawn towards what I want. Instead of my heart being drawn towards selfish gain, God, please help my heart to be drawn towards your truth. Right? This is what I mean when I say it's so natural because our hearts are naturally selfish. We got to pray. We gotta beg, we gotta ask God, and we gotta fight against our own selfish desires that say we insist on our own way. Right? So what's the opposite? Well, the opposite defers to others. Paul is a perfect example of this. 
1 Corinthians 8.13. I want to read exactly what he said so you can hear, so you can maybe picture yourself. Could you ever say something like this? 1 Corinthians 8.13. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. 1 Corinthians 9.19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. 1 Corinthians 10.33, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, exact same word is used in 1 Corinthians 13, by the way, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, they may be saved. Instead of letting your selfish heart naturally seek after what it wants, like the current of the ocean pulling you a mile down the coast without you even realizing it, right? You look up and and you have no idea that your own selfish heart has pulled you in this place that you never wanted to be, treating people in ways you never thought you would treat people. Instead of letting that happen, seek their good. Defer to what they want, just like what Paul did. Right? He didn't just consider others, but when what others wanted didn't go against Scripture, he deferred to them for their good. Big ways, small ways, both. Next, love is not easily provoked. Or essentially what this is saying is love doesn't lose its temper. I was, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, this past week uh, on why some of the atrocities of, of war happen. They were essentially answering the question, what makes decent, rational people snap in a way that causes mass casualties to innocent people? I'd never thought of that question. I don't know if you guys had. But think about it, right? These massive atrocities of war. What makes good, decent people? Not perfectly good, right? But let's just say decent. What did I put? Decent, rational people. What makes decent, rational people snap and commit these atrocities? They had this Navy SEAL on who, who, uh, who is also a trainer for the SEALs. And he told how these things happen because people don't, as he put it, detach from the situation. That's the word that he always reminds them of. Right? So he talks about how these, these guys, they're looking down their scope. The heat of the moment, things are flying out of control and they don't detach for even a moment. And this is the precise moment when innocent people die on a mass level because they're never able to detach. And what he trains them, he says, no, you need to be able to look up. You need to take a breath. You need to look around. Assess the situation, right? Move forward with a clear head. Now apply this to everyday life. You're in the heat of the moment in a discussion or an interaction with somebody. It's not war. Kind of feels like a battle though, right? You do something you shouldn't. You say something you shouldn't. All because of your quick temper. To love others is to not let that happen. To not be easily provoked. This is the second passive verb on this list. By the way, if you remember last week, we talked about arrogance is the other one. This idea that uh, with a passive verb, you don't act on it. It basically acts upon you, right? Which is really fascinating when you think about this to be easily provoked. You guys know this, but we just don't think about it. You don't just get angry for anger's sake, although some of you might, right? And that's, that's not good. When you're just like, you miss getting snapping at somebody, right? Like popping off at somebody, so you just do it just because... That's not most people, right? Typically what happens, especially what Paul is talking about here, somebody else acts in a way that makes you boil 
You didn't go looking for them. They found you, but you let them bring out the worst in you. It happens so easily. For some of you, easier than others. Treating people in ways that you never would otherwise. So what's the opposite? Love is slow to anger. Right, James 1.19, or James 1.19 through 20. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you struggle with a temper, this hurts, right? You want to live as God would have you, then don't let this sort of anger, the quick anger, right, as he calls it, or the, the anger of man, don't let the anger of man master you. Like that Navy SEAL taught, when you hear your voice rising or you feel your blood starting to boil, pull back, take a breath, assess the situation, and pray for God's help to discern how to respond. Now, a few quick cautions, very quick, surrounding our understanding of anger, okay? First, don't confuse anger with righteous zeal. I'm going to hit you guys on both sides. First, please don't confuse righteous zeal and anger or temper. Listen to how this author puts it. Men often claim zeal for religion and honor of God as the reason for their anger when it's really just their own interest they're concerned with. It is remarkable, they continue, how forward men are as if zealous for God and righteousness in, <coughs> in cases where their honor or will or interest has been hurt and use this religious zeal as justification for hurting others. In other words, it's easy to confuse a short temper with religious zeal. Those situations need to check your heart. Other side, right? Don't just confuse anger and, religious and, and righteous zeal. Other side, don't confuse a lack of anger as instantly meaning that you are fulfilling what Paul is describing here. Right, you might not have a quick temper. You're like, hey, I'm good. I'm not easily provoked. So in a sense, you're right. That's not you. But some of you might not have a quick temper because you're actually apathetic about everything. Right, you're apathetic about the Lord. Apathetic about sin. Apathetic about life in general. You don't get mad. So you don't really care about anything. And when I think about the person who probably confuses their anger, their righteous zeal and anger, right? And this person who confuses rightness with really, it's, it's just apathy. I think that's a bigger problem. Don't hide your anger behind a facade of religion. Likewise, don't hide your apathy behind a facade of patience. Next, love is not, there we go, Oop is not resentful. You have to see the next one too. So this is how the ESV and a few others read, and it's perfectly appropriate, but it's possibly more familiar to you when I put it like this, right? So, so mine says love is not resentful. You might have memorized it. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And you know, I actually really love that translation. That's exactly what Paul is painting here. It's this idea of a person making a list, right? Whether in their mind or on paper. This is happening in Corinth too. Right, they make a list, they hold on to it, so much so that they then take the people to court. Have justice served. Some of you guys are expert list makers. Right, you got a list of chores, you got a list of 
assignments. You got a list of prayer requests. Everything organized in a nice, neat way for easy reference and recall. Well, the list that Paul describes here isn't quite so nice and neat. It's darker. It's more ominous. It's a list of how people have wronged you. Some of you are experts at these sorts of lists, too. Somebody embarrassed you in high school. You still count that against them. Somebody screwed up once and you were the victim of their failure. Never forgotten. Somebody who's rude to you and your relationship has never been the same by your choosing. Some people are expert grudge holders, which is exactly what Paul is talking about here. And this sort of behavior wreaks havoc on the unity that we have as believers. It's not right, and it's not justifiable, right? But people will treat you wrong. I'm not defending when they treat you wrong. Maybe they did it on purpose. Maybe they did it on accident. But it's going to happen. And for the sake of our unity, you cannot hold on to that grudge. Right? You can't keep that list in your back pocket ready to pull it out at a moment's notice. That's not love. Love forgives. I've preached on forgiveness before. I don't want to recap it, but I want to say this one thing. You've heard me say it, some of you. Forgiveness seeks reconciliation, not justice. They've hurt you. You have the record to prove it, right? You've got the list. They've hurt you, and you won't be satisfied until justice is served, which essentially just means until they're hurt in return. That's not love. Love takes that hurt. It goes to that line on that list, pulls out a pen, crosses it out. Never again to be referenced, to go back to. As hard as it might be for you to forgive, you have to. Not just for our unity. This is what what God has done for us, right? Romans 4, 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Exact same word. Will not count. Same word as here in 1 Corinthians 13. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. If you're a believer, if you have God's spirit inside of you, God did this for you, right? He went to that list, blotted it all out, never to be referenced again. Aren't you glad that he didn't keep a record of your wrongs? Just in case, right, the day might come when he decides he needs to pull it back out and you need to be reminded of it. To forgive a person who has hurt you is one of the most Christ-like things you could do. Think about it, right? Forgiveness is really the very essence of God's love in the gospel. Listen to this quote. It's on love and forgiveness. It says, love does not have to clear up all misunderstandings. In its power... The details of the past become irrelevant. Accounts may go unsettled. Differences remain unsolved. Ledgers stay unbalanced. Conflict between people's memories of how things happened are not cleared up. The past stays muddled. Love prefers to tuck all the loose ends of past rights and wrongs, not under the rug, but in the bosom of forgiveness. And pushes us into a new start. The author concludes, moving towards a reconciled life 
is one of the hardest things any human being is ever asked to do. Love is the power to do that. So true. If you've been hurt, to forgive, one of the hardest things you could ever do. Love is the power to do that. Last, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. The word to highlight here actually is rejoice. When you think about it, right? Paul is really contrasting these two extremes of joy. That's the word, rejoice. Some finding joy in sin on this side. Others finding joy in truth on this side. It's a heavy thought to say a person rejoices over sin. Think about it. That's what Paul is saying, right? There's a person who rejoices over sin, but that's the reality of the sins in our life that we cling to. We keep doing them because we love them, because they bring us joy. Elsewhere, Paul writes, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. It's so similar to what he says here in 1 Corinthians. And that word to abhor literally means to pull away from something with hatred. That's what love does towards sin. Right, but what does that have to do with loving others? Because that's really the context that Paul writes this. Well, imagine rejoicing when a friend does wrong. I wouldn't do that. I don't rejoice when a friend does wrong. Maybe. All right, they tell a, they tell a, a bad joke. Pull a bad prank. They make fun of somebody in front of their face, maybe behind their back. What do we do? We laugh. We're rejoicing in what was happening. This happened in Corinth, right? Committing adultery with his stepmom, and they were boasting about it. Right? Or possibly imagine rejoicing when a person experiences wrong. They don't get the internship that they wanted. They get a bad grade. They embarrass themselves in front of a crowd. As much as we hate to admit it, we've all been guilty of rejoicing either outwardly at a friend's sin or inwardly at another's hurt. And Paul says that's not love. Instead, love rejoices over truth and righteousness. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy, John wrote, than to know that my children are walking in the truth. He's talking about other believers that he's had the chance to, to be in their life. And he says, I have no greater joy than to know that they're walking in the truth. Can you say that? That's love. These are the things that we should rejoice in, the things on the, on the right, right? These are the things that we should take joy in, the things that we should celebrate. And last, Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul's wrapping it up. Literally, this is what's happening. He's wrapping it up. And he makes these final, big, broad statements about what love is. That's what's happening here. He says, love bears all things. Right, I like how this commentator put it. Loving people are willing to overlook the imperfections of others. So it means to bear all things. Loving people are willing to overlook the imperfections of others. To believe all things. Loving people never lose faith in other people and give up on them but remain faithful to them in spite of their shortcomings. Hopes all things. Loving people keep looking ahead to better days, for they know that God has sent His Spirit to work out His will in His people. So they hold on to hope. Endures all things. 
loving people, stand firm in the midst of trials and hardships, and do not give up the ship. Paul's emphasis here in all these phrases is on the word all. That's why some Bibles translate it always bearing, always believing, always hoping, always enduring. In other words, as one author put it, I love this. Really what Paul is saying here, love is tenacious. It doesn't stop working. It doesn't stop giving grace to others. It doesn't stop hoping for God to change others. And it doesn't stop fighting. Love doesn't stop because, next verse, love never fails. Love is tenacious. It doesn't stop. Doesn't give up. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. So if you want to obey Christ's greatest command... If you want to see God work through you to impact the lives of others. If you want to see the power of God cut through the dysfunction and disunity that is all too common in our churches today. The answer is simple. It's to love. And I'm not making this up. Right? This is kind of the whole foundation of this series. Colossians 3. Above all, put on love the perfect bond. Of unity. Let's pray. God, we all know this passage. There's a chance it's not new to a single person in here. We might even all have it memorized. Yet, God, I don't know how much of it is evident in our lives. So, God, I pray that Uh, You have used your word by your spirit to convict that we would keep your word in front of us like a mirror, God, always desiring to be more like Christ, to surrender our own preferences, to surrender the way we like to do things because it's just who we are, that we would seek to love others as you loved us, as Christ set an example for. God, help us to be a body of believers that are defined by our love. And God, as we love one another, the beauty of it is that unity that Christ prayed for in the garden and that he gave his life for, God, that's what's going to hold us together is love. So help us, God, to love one another, not just hypothetically, but real day-to-day living. Help us to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead.